Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading teach to fish consulting firm Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Dear Diary, JJ, he did it. I can't believe it. I'm so excited he came up with this crazy idea, and it worked. Everything I ever dreamed of, everything I ever wanted in life is going to come true. I'm so glad I took a chance on him. Look out, world. Here I come. All right. So, Matt, last episode, you left us hanging with JJ, Leadville, and the little Johnny mine. If they weren't mining for silver, right, which they kind of built the city up around, what were they mining for? It was for gold. So JJ had devised a way to get to the gold. They always knew it was there, but the way that it was built uh, or made, how God made it, I guess, that's maybe the way to say it, there was so much sand that if they dug into it, it would, it would collapse and, and people would die from trying to get to the gold. And so they knew it was, it was untouchable. However, JJ, being the great miner, genius miner that he was, he devised a way to get to it. And so with the company, they gave it one more shot. And what he did, which today doesn't seem like it's that genius of an idea, but it was back then, was they took hay bales and they put them up on the roof underneath the sand. And then under that, they took the wood beams that would usually hold up the dirt and they used that to hold up the hay bales and it kept the sand away and it allowed them to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And for this genius, the company gave him 12,500 shares of the company, and he made a fortune. Mm. And it was from this fortune, from the 12,500 shares, that he was able to buy into more mines, share his idea, and make even more money from that. And this little Johnny mine, just to kind of paint a picture of how big of a deal this was, little Johnny mine during its peak was shipping 135 tons of gold ore per day. Holy moly. That's a lot of cheddar. Uh, yeah, I would say so. So I assume that uh, this led to JJ and Margaret gaining some wealth, launching them maybe into that Silver King strata of Leadville society. Absolutely, and made them super, super wealthy. Except now they're gold kings and queens. Correct. Not silver kings, but gold. It made them super wealthy. And being wealthy opened up an opportunity to give back. And this is when Margaret blossomed. She was no longer the woman behind the man, but she was able to stand on her own as Margaret Brown. And through kind of this this growing up post-Civil War that we talked about last episode in a state really on the kind of dividing line between disparity of the miners and, and the Silver Kings, this led to her speaking up and then quickly being shut down because she was a woman in a time when women really didn't have a voice in it lack of a better word, pissed her off and made her want to talk more. And the money and the wealth that she came into gave her a voice. And it all led to this great awareness of the haves and have-nots. And the have-nots just broke her heart, and she no longer could hold back. It started with miners' families in Leadville. They were struggling to put food on the table, and J.J. and Margaret would help and would give food, especially around the holidays. There was an orphanage 
for boys, and JJ and Margaret every year for Christmas would give gifts to the boys in the orphanage. So this at this point in time, some of her early philanthropic work, it sounds like she and JJ were doing it together. Did he want to do it from his own volition, or was he kind of doing it because, you know, that's what his wife thought that they should do? At this point in time, it was a dual purpose. She would find something that she felt needed to happen, and they would do it. He would find something that would need to happen, and he would do it. Really, the orphanages and the young men Christmas gifts, that was really JJ's idea, but okay. it was they did that as a pair. So they make their wealth, or they start start making their wealth in gold. And they buy a home in Denver in 1894. And this is when her run in high society starts. Thaddeus, you want to share a little bit about what high society was like during this time? Yeah, I think for an idea of what high society was like at this time for Margaret, we can point back to Catherine Drexel in an earlier season of Holy Donors, where Margaret Brown is living in a society where women were in large part... uh, seen, not heard. Their primary role was raising a family, being a companion to their husband, where possible, getting involved in charitable efforts, involvement through churches especially. Now, you know, America already had a tradition by the 1890s of women being very involved in social causes. You have the the temperance movement of the antebellum period, the criminal reform movement of the antebellum period, for one. Women were very involved in the abolitionist movement, for another example. But still, you know, women were not clearly business leaders the way in a J.J. Brown type of, type of role. But I think what's interesting about Margaret Brown as opposed to Catherine Drexel, Margaret is maybe because she's new money, quote unquote, maybe she has a different sense of what is proper and a proper way for her to use her wealth. Emma, Catherine Drexel's stepmother, stayed kind of behind the scenes and employed charity in a, in a traditional sense of, I have these means and I'm going to help people one-on-one as individuals, right, through her home, inviting them to come through her home. And, you know, interestingly, Margaret has more of this sense of wanting to use her newfound wealth to change society rather than Emma wanting to change individual people's lives. Do you see what I'm what I'm driving at? Do we have any evidence of Margaret using her wealth to specifically change the circumstances of these juvenile boys? So in early 1903 she met a judge Lindsay and he brought the idea of how kids, juveniles were being sentenced and sent to prison as if they were an adult and it broke the judges and Margaret's heart. And it started them down a path to start the first ever juvenile court system and a model for other states to use. This was, you were talking about first steps. This was her first step. Wow, that is a really bold first step, an unusual step, given what you pointed out correctly about women having a a more limited, you know, certainly a limited political voice. Uh, Most of the states, even in this time period, even in the Western states, there was not voting for women but that she was able to influence Judge Lindsay and develop Colorado's juvenile court system, that says a lot about her ambition and her influence, the way that she could bring people along on her her side in terms of social policy. I mean, the other thing that I want to ask about, and maybe you can tell me this, 
when we started this, we talked about Leadville being kind of a wild west town, right? You know, a lot of saloons, uh, a lot of brothels, not a lot of schools, not a lot of churches. Was part of it just that the kids that ended up in Leadville, whether they were orphans, whether they found their way there by train, whether, you know, whatever, just didn't have a fair shot because of the makeup of the town of Leadville. So, you know, yeah, they're going to get in trouble because they don't have good role models. And so Judge Lindsay, Margaret, what to give the kids the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, I, I think we could conjecture to that point. As we know, young people, their brains don't develop, especially dumb boys who, who what is it, their frontal cortex isn't fully developed till they're, what, 21, 22, 23. And we give them, today, we give them the benefit of the doubt. At that time, we didn't. And you're right. They were thrown into miserable circumstances. They didn't have a whole lot of options. And sometimes the option was to take a risk and break the law. Mm. And they got caught. Yeah, so a lot of them, their only option was work in the mines. You know, this is child labor still in full effect in industrial America. They're down in the mines working, working long hours, six, seven days a week for low wages. And they were hardened as, as kids. Yes, Remember the eight, eight-year-old bringing a pipe to class and smoking it while he's while yep. he's in school? Exactly. And they're not in school. If they're working in the mines, right. they're not in school. Right. Hi, I'm Peter DeCaretree, Program Director and Instructor for the Institute for Catholic Philanthropy, MBA program at the University of Mary. I've been in development for 30 years and can say without question that earning an advanced degree in philanthropy and development was one of the most valuable experiences I have ever had. The Institute for Catholic Philanthropy at the University of Mary provides tactical training for new and experienced Catholic development professionals. It balances on-site, cohort-style learning with the convenience of remote coursework. If you've ever considered leading a Catholic organization or helping drive the new evangelization, enroll today in the University of Mary MBA program. We are producing the sort of well-trained, committed leaders that are crucial to the Catholic Church for generations to come. Learn more at umary.edu slash philanthropy. So this is where, it, it, to me, it gets a little fascinating as a development professional, too. We have Margaret, who has this sense of cause, this sense of changing the world, about seeing something that's wrong and wanting to do something about it. And then you have this other side of her where she she falls in love with high society. She enjoys dressing up. She enjoys being a part of clubs. She enjoys going to theater. She enjoyed having a beautiful house in Denver. Right, right. And she married these two things together in order to further her social issues, right? That she was able to take these two passions and turn them for good while using high society. So she would take, for instance, the cathedral at St. Joseph and St. Joseph's Hospital. Here are all these different things that she spearheaded the funds for. She would create an event and she would invite her high society friends. And she wasn't the donor who would say, okay, for instance, on the cathedral, I'm going to give a million dollars so that you can help the cathedral. She would say, I'm going to give you a million dollars and I'm going to throw an event and I'm going to invite all my high society friends and I'm going to make them feel guilty that they also give a million bucks. So by the end of this event, the cathedral is paid for. Mm. So she would take on all these causes. So are you suggesting that she was a pioneer in things like a benefit gala or a fundraising dinner? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
for these things that needed to happen. Wow. So you've got to remember, it wasn't for frivolous ideas. These were grand ideas, hospitals, cathedrals, the juvenile court system, all these different kinds of nonprofits and passion projects of hers, she would help push along to make sure that they would happen, that they would be funded, and that they could change the world. So it sounds like Margaret is kind of a GSD kind of kind of gal, right? <laughs> she wants to get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and she's not afraid to bring her friends, her all the other people of society along with her as long as she's going to get stuff done. What about JJ? Is is she bringing him along? Is he along for the ride? Is he leading the charge? Where is he in all this? Well, he's along for the ride for a lot of it, but he's really doing his own business stuff. So again, looking back at high society and how it ran, the man did the business stuff. The women dressed up and did their club things. Well, at some point in time, there was this division where she turned into, as you eloquently put it, she turned into a GSD. She got stuff done. Mm-hmm. And he was doing his own thing. And it was almost this, this part. But when he started doing his own thing in his own business affairs, there was this black cloud that kind of came from that. And we can get into a lot of that. But it was really a dark turn from his standpoint, not from hers, but from his standpoint, that created a division in the marriage. You're talking about like unethical business practices? Is he taking advantage of people? Is he looking around at other, other women? What's going on? You were on the money at the with the last statement. Hmm. He had a wondering eye. Is that is that a clean way to to say that? He sure. had a wondering eye, and because of that, in 1909, they officially legally separated. They never divorced, but they did legally separate hmm. in 1909. Do they have children at this time? They had the two, Palmer and Helen. Yeah. yeah. So did they stay with Margaret? They all stayed with Margaret. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But you said that they separated, they didn't divorce. Is this because of their Catholic faith? They divorce was not allowed. I'm I'm glad you asked that. So from everything we can find, it was her who said, I don't want to get a, a divorce. And that was because of her Catholic faith. Hmm. You don't get divorced. That was what went through her mind, and that's why they never did. But you know, she never had a wandering eye. She never looked for romantic life after that. At, at some point when she became high society, she turned into someone with a purpose. Mm. And Great. she didn't need a man to get that done. He go, JJ goes off to New York. Margaret stays in Denver and in Colorado. Why New York? Do we, do we have a sense of why? That's where his business took him. He also felt that Colorado was, was not good for his health. Interesting. That Most, was, a lot of people moved to Colorado because they thought it was good for their health. Right, right. But he felt it wasn't. Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices, both big and small, from dioceses, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at PetrusDevelopment.com PDC22. The first 10 people to register in the month of April will receive a $40 voucher for round-trip transportation between the airport and the resort. Space is limited, so visit PetrusDevelopment.com PDC22 to reserve your spot today. So they, they separate, they kind of go their own ways. She still has access to the wealth. 
but during this time, there's a few other things that I that are important to be said, but I don't I don't know if it goes along the storyline that we we go with being a holy donor, and that was she ran for the U.S. Senate twice. Once in 1909 and again in 1914. Wow, running for U.S. Senate. That doesn't seem like in 1914 there's a lot of female Senate, and there Senate candidates. Is that Was that pretty atypical for this time period? For U.S. Senate, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so she was a pioneer in that regard as well. And, and at, at what year were did they— Women's, women's suffrage? suffrage the, the right to vote. 1920. For, for, na- that's national. Now, Colorado the decades sooner. before that, especially the western states, had been giving— women the right to vote. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely she's a pioneer. She's going in areas that maybe women hadn't been pursuing in the past or hadn't had license to. So, I I mean, I think that's really great. So on top of all this, she ran for the U.S. Senate twice, but had a monumental event happen in her life between the first time she ran and the second time. I'm really excited to share about this. This was an event that would completely change the way she was viewed. This is, this is what created the Molly story. And it would change the way that people viewed her for the remaining part of her life and the legacy she would leave behind. She took a boat ride on the Titanic. I've heard of that. <laughs> How'd it turn out? <laughs> Tune in next week and you'll find out, Andrew. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Howdy, I'm Andrew, your friendly host of the award-winning Petrus Development Show, a podcast where I interview great development officers and ministry leaders about how they raise more money for their organization. Subscribe to the Petrus Development Show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Knock, knock. Who's there? Daisy. Daisy who? Daisy. Daisy me rolling, they hatin'. (laughs) Oh. They see me rolling, they hating. <laughs> Leadville and the little Johnny mind. If the little Johnny mind, little John did little Johnny mind. Oh, little Johnny mine. <laughs> little Johnny don't mind. So this is where we insert Elmer Fudd. It's gold, I tell you, it's gold. <laughs> you weaker, gold at last. <laughs> and she would invite all of her friends who had cash running out of their their back ends. You know, they had so much money to throw. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, don't, don't forget, we're still on a gold standard here, so that's not a not a comfortable thought there. So uh, let's let's maybe rephrase that. Oh, yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs>